Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. Thank you very much for coming on no, no longer a snowy, now just a plain old rainy morning. Thank you very much to BT for hosting this morning. This event is one of our series of club events where we try and I think we've succeeded this morning in bringing highly interesting people together to discuss highly topical and relevant issues. We're doing so this morning in association with the Media Trust and uh, one of their members is going to speak on the panel. I'm going to introduce you to your chair, Veronica Wadley, who will take over from me. Veronica is now a distinguished arts consultant for a number of organisations not least still in the frame for the Arts Council job, which became a bit of a political hot potato. She was, of course, the editor of the London Evening Standard during a period of major political and cultural change, not least the time when the Olympic bid was won for London and followed, of course, by the bombings. Uh, She has been nominated by... She's on the Mayor's Advisory Board for his Music in Schools programme, amongst other things, and she's married to the writer Tom Bauer, but in this context she is an uber expert and she's going to guide you through the proceedings. We are being filmed and podcast. It's a little bit late to remove yourself if you object to either, but now is the moment to do so if you do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julia, and um, thank you all very much for coming today in spite of of, uh, the weather's best efforts to keep you at home. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be chairing today's Olympic debate, and I'd like to welcome our very distinguished panel of speakers, John Armit, Sir Robin Wales, Stuart Hill, Maria Michael Ludu, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and Miha Bose. I'll introduce each of you more fully before you have your um, five minutes of fame. Now, I just wanted to say a few words about um, 2012 and my own involvement with it. Um, I was actually an unashamed supporter of the Olympics, um, really long before it was fashionable and much to the horror of many of my staff at the Evening Standard. They all thought it was going to be a complete disaster, much more pain than gain, and um, many of them said that it was a, a foolish course. But anyway, we persisted. And, of course, we were doubly pleased when the bid in Singapore was successful. Then, of course, I reverted to type, and um, we aggressively scrutinized the um, politicians and the plans and the progress and the promises of the Olympic bid um, and made lots of um, politicians and very important people at LOCOG and probably ODA um, very cross indeed. Anyway, um, I'd like to uh, just say a few words before we uh, turn to the speakers. Uh, As you probably all know now, um, it's less than 1,000 days to go before the opening of the London Olympics. I think it's 925 to be exact. Um, So the question that we're asking is, London 2012, is the pain worth the gain? John will be opening the batting first, but I'd just like to raise some of the themes which I think our various speakers will be uh, discussing today. So we know that the Olympics will be on time. Um, 27th of July will be the opening day. And on budget, 
well, that's what we're promised. We'll, we'll see about that. But the extraordinary thing is that I remember when the back of the envelope um, estimates were first talked about, and then suddenly we found escalated to 9.3 billion. Everyone was absolutely horrified, and there was a great stink about it, and we wrote about it a lot. But now, in a funny sort of way, in the shadow of the debt crisis, somehow that figure seems to be, well, relatively small. It's rather shocking, isn't it? But um, I never thought I'd hear myself say that. Um, it's obviously going to be a great opportunity to showcase Britain. Um, it'll show that we can do something really, really big, really, really well. And John is obviously one of the great masters of that. Um, it'll boost the economy. It'll boost morale. And I hope will be a chance to unite the country. Um, with some luck, we'll also get lots of medals, even more than Beijing, perhaps. Um, the venues are shooting up, and the Olympic Park is really is beginning to take, uh, take shape. It's really worth looking at the website to see the aerial photographs. And John was just telling me this morning that there are now satellite pictures of the, of the Olympic Park, which must be quite a sight. I haven't seen them myself. But the 80,000-seat stadium is starting to look like something out of Gladiator. The Aquatic Centre with its great roof, the Velo Park, the Handball Arena, and all the rest. So, and then the Olympic Village, that's also taking shape, which, you know, in the, in the PR will be, you know, a wonderful haven for hardworking, aspirational families. I'm sure Robin will have a few words to say about that. And then there's the network of the um, parks, the canals, the waterways, and so on. Sporting legacy, well, let's see. Perhaps mil millions of us will be getting on our jogging pants and um, running shoes. So I think that's probably enough of the, of, of the gain. Um, the others will speak about that. Um, I'm beginning to sound a bit like Tessa Giles, so I think I'll talk about the pain. Um, have the doom-mongers doom really been reduced to silence? Well, I think there are still a lot of very, very big issues that we need to think about. Um, Medals, yes, we, we obviously hope that uh, we can win lots of medals, and I think we're on course for that. Um, will there be three weeks of rain? Well, we can probably live with that. Will there be an embarrassing opening ceremony with Boris waving a flag and Beckham on another red bus? Um, will the tickets be too expensive for ordinary Londoners? That's, I think, a very important issue. And then there are the questions of the impact that all the money that's going into the Olympics is having on the arts in theatre, something that I'm obviously very interested in. And Greenwich Park, for example, will it recover from the thundering hooves of the equestrian events? But I think that those, in a way, I think will probably um, will be settled fairly happily. I think the biggest issues, which I hope we really will get into today, are two. One um, is security, and the other is legacy. The legacy, both the physical legacy and the sporting legacy. So we'll have an opportunity to debate those, and I hope there'll be lots of questions from the floor on those issues, because I think those really will turn out to be what we will be most concerned about in the build-up to the big day and afterwards. You know, the security costs, as we know, they're zooming up. The, the very latest estimate in, in a paper a few weeks ago was that the bill could even be £2 billion. That is huge. That really is something. And, and Stuart, I'm sure you'll be able to tell us a little bit about all the um, amazing things you're do going to be doing to make sure that cyber terrorism, for example, doesn't um, suddenly loom down on us. Um, in November 2009, Lord West actually said that he thought that the Olympics would be the greatest security challenge that UK has faced since the Second World War. 
that's quite something to think about. So, again, another good issue. And then there's the legacy. You know, what's going to happen to the stadium? Is it going to be a white elephant? Will we see hundreds of athletes running around it for years to come? Will it be a football club, a rugby club, American football? We don't know. Well, if anyone does know, I'd love to hear because I think that is a really big question which does need to be answered quite soon. And, um, you know, we, ho we hope that a, a, a really bright future lies ahead for the stadium. Will we all be, still be a nation of couch potatoes? I hope not. And the Olympic Village, I think that's going to be another vast challenge. Again, something that Robin is really interested in. Um, will we see a soulless rise of huge high-rise developments that have failed Londoners so many times before? It seems unimaginable now, but, you know, it could happen. We've got to address these issues. The Olympic Legacy Company is obviously doing fantastic work, but, you know, that is a big question, how you actually create a vibrant, working aspirational community is a huge challenge. Um, um, the well-known pessimist Tory, Andrew Boff, suggested that the Olympic Village might even be the slums of the future. That's a pretty horrifying thought. So again, I think we need to think about that. So can the Olympic legacy company turn, as Dave Hill very um, pertinently asked in The Guardian recently, the ashes of the Olympics into a green and pleasant land? So. Um, panelists and audience, um, those are some of the questions. And I'd just like to introduce the um, panelists that we have, our experts. I'll introduce each of them in turn before they speak so that you know a little bit about them before they have their, their five minutes. And it will be a very strict five minutes. There's a clock, clock up there, so there's no excuse. Um, first of all, John Armit. Now, John was appointed chairman of the um, Olympic Delivery Authority in 2007. That's just three years ago. It's not long, is it? It was amazing what's been achieved in that time. Um, but of course, he does have lots of experience in construction and railways. He was, in his 40-year career, he's been in civil engineering and construction working for Costain Rail Track and Network Rail. He is the man who will prove to us that Britain can do big projects. So we look forward to hearing about that. Um, I did look on the website for a controversial quote about um, John, but I must confess I couldn't find one. So clearly he's a very good chairman. So you've got your five minutes. So with no time for hesitation, repetition, or deviation, over to you, John. Thank, Thank you very you. much. <clears throat> right, good morning, everybody. And uh, well, Veronica's almost said it all, hasn't she? Uh, particularly on the gain side. Uh, I mean, there is plenty of gain. Uh, but what I'd like to do is just start by outlining uh, what we actually do, because sometimes people do get a bit confused. The ODA, we build the venues, we build the infrastructure, uh, as we are the civil engineers, if you like, and the builders. Uh, LOCOG actually put on the games, they put on the show, so we build the theatre, they put on the show. The Olympic Park Legacy Company, which has just come into existence, uh, will pick up the, the legacy responsibility. They're in their early days, and... Uh, they clearly have uh, a, lot, a lot to do, but during the course of 2010, expect to put out their first master plan uh, for the legacy development of the, uh, of the site. We took over the site in, in 2007. Uh, where is it? It's in the Lee Valley. It's uh, an area of 600 acres, which was heavily contaminated, um, essentially derelict industrial land to a very large extent. 
um, crisscrossed by railways and canals and, uh, and the River Lee running right through the middle of it, an area which had been essentially rather impervious in the past between Newham on the one side and Hackney uh, on, the, on the other. We've cleaned up the site. Um, a million uh, cubic metres of uh, contaminated soil have been uh, cleaned, recovered, not sent to landfill. Uh, we've uh, built two major tunnels under the site so that all the power lines which used to crisscross the site on 52 uh, pylons, they're now underground, the pylons have gone, which opens up the site for, uh, for development. And uh, we've taken down 200 buildings and in fact 100 companies have been relocated and relocated of course into new premises. So companies have already benefited by getting new premises as a consequence of this. If you go down there these days, and if you in fact go to the top of BT's tower, you can now see the stadium, uh, the stadium structurally uh, complete, and uh, we're putting on the roof at, uh, at the moment. Uh, the aquatic centre has already got its <laughs> roof, uh, almost floating in the air, uh, and we're now building the swimming pools and so on underneath it. We have the... Um, if you come down the A12, you'll see the velodrome almost falling across the road. Uh, much bigger structure, I think, than some of us had actually uh, realised uh, before. Um, so that's coming on well. And there's a million square feet, which is Canary Wharf Tower, stood on, uh, laid on its side, already up uh, structurally for the International Broadcasting Centre and clearly the potential to provide uh, a very large uh, piece of... Uh, uh, a large building to provide jobs in the, in the future <coughs> after the Games. The village, which has already been mentioned, 12 different architects, so hopefully a good deal of uh, architectural interest uh, so that we don't finish up with uh, a monolithic uh, slum, potentially, in the future. Those buildings are already up. We've already topped out the first two, cladding going on them, 3,000 apartments providing 3,000 homes uh, for Londoners in the, in the future. Uh, this is all happening at a time of um, somewhat difficult period in the economy. Uh, we've placed £5 billion worth of con contracts. That's £5 billion worth of activity going around the UK economy. Thousands of companies are benefiting across the UK from this. 1,100 contracts placed by ourselves, but of course a whole series of secondary subcontracts below those top uh, tier one contracts, as, uh, as we call them. This is all happening uh, in an area of London which has long suffered high levels of unemployment. 20% of the 10,000 people who've had jobs on the, on the contract so far have come from the uh, resident in the five boroughs uh, around, the, uh, around the park. And 10% of those people said that they were previously unemployed before they got their jobs on the park. We've already put hundreds of people through training schemes. And in fact, we have committed to providing 2,250 apprenticeship opportunities before we complete uh, construction. So we are providing jobs, not only in London, obviously 50% of the jobs in fact have gone to people in and around London, but across the whole country there are companies who are benefiting from the, from the games. Uh, at the end of the games we will have the various stadia available for sports facilities, we will have that million square feet of building available for, uh, for jobs, we will have 3,000 apartments, 900 of which are three and four bedroom apartments, so it's not your usual uh, London development full of one and two bedroom uh, apartments, but it is a much more mixed uh, scheme. Uh, and we will have the largest new parkland which has been created um, in Europe for over 100 years. So I think we are creating a, a, a new place in London which will be a massive attraction <laughs> 
on the side of it, we've got the largest shopping centre going up in the moment, uh, which is uh, a covered shopping centre in the UK, uh, being put up by Westfield in the middle of the site. And we're also spending about £800 million on transport improvements, and people are already seeing those improvements. The DLR, for example, going from two to three car units, um, and there will be long-term transport benefits for people in London. So I see nothing uh, but gain, as you would expect me to see. Uh, and as Veronica has already said, yes, it's a lot of money. Uh, but so was the Jubilee Line, and look what the Jubilee Line did for London. Look at so many of these very large projects um, which have gone on in the past. People criticise them at the time. They provide long-term opportunities, and in this case, massive regeneration for London. So I have absolutely no doubt that this is something with which we will be proud of for a very long time to come. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. You've set a very good example. You were literally on the button. I think you must have done this before, so well done. Now we turn to Sir Robin Wales. Now, I think we probably had less problem with controversy here. Um, Robin has been Newham's um, mayor since 2002. He was the first Labour directly elected mayor. Um, he's a chemist by training and has worked in Ford management systems, I gather, which clearly is very useful when you're running a council. Um, Newham, of course, is at the heart of the, uh, of the Olympics um, site. Uh, he's on the LOCOG board and the Olympic Legacy co uh, Company board. His main interest is, is clearly regeneration. That's going to be the big challenge. And I suspect the, um, the day after the Olympics is going to be what Robin is really, really concerned about. So um, over to you. Thank you, Robin. I think the answer to the question is going to be who knows? It, it's up for grabs. There's a few good things happened, and we should recognise those things. And, and I'll give... I'm going to, I told John I'm going to criticise in a lot of while, but let's start. The stories were always... The games wouldn't be, on, wouldn't be ready, it wouldn't be on budget. Fantastic job. ODA's done a fantastic job building the place. It's built it on time. It'll certainly be ready on time. Built on budget. In fact, there may be an underspend, in which case we'll have that back. Thank you, John. We will have it in New York. That'd be fantastic. Great. Lockhog lot of good work going on, running the games. I think it looks very professional. It's early days yet, but it looks as if we're running a good game. We need to run a good game. We need a games that works, because actually it'd be really embarrassing for the country if we didn't run a good games. Great. I don't personally mind how many gold medals we win, but we want a good games. OK, that's fine. We've made two promises when we went in for the bid. One was we'd work on young people in sport nationally, and that's fine. I think... Locals trying to do some stuff around that. that that's smashing. I think a perfectly reasonable question would be to ask, mm -hmm. what's the mechanism by which we're going to ensure that it's not just a Wimbledon effect for six weeks? What exactly are we doing? So, for example, in my borough, we now have the largest sports and activity programme in London for sport and activity for kids in the summer. We started free swims. We were the first in England to do free swims because we think it's important and sport's important. <coughs> and we have to be saying to the people who... Uh, I don't know, local authorities, schools, government. What are we doing to make sure that's delivered? Because it can't be delivered by the Games. What the Games can do is inspire people. And when we started and made the bid for the game, I, I was absolutely clear. It's not the physical regeneration that's the most important thing. It is the inspiration of the Games that's the most important thing. Because regeneration, building, throwing up buildings, doesn't necessarily transform a place. Because the second, the big promise was, we'll transform the East End. For a hundred years, the East End's taken the rubbish from the rest of London. The Lee was the dividing line, so all the noxious, noxious industries came to our part. If you go back a hundred years, the poverty map that you get in London is exactly the same as it is today. If you, get on the dis if you get on the Jubilee line at Westminster, every stop you take to Canning Town, people will live a year less. They die earlier in my borough. 
and every stop £1,600 less income. That's a national scandal. Biggest area of non-employment in Europe is in the five Olympic boroughs. And here's where it gets interesting. Canary Wharf, fantastic achievement, yeah. Oh, God, you're all, you're all, you're all half asleep. Fantastic achievement. Generated, <laughs> generated loads of wealth. But here's the thing. Tower Hamlets had the biggest increase in jobs anywhere in the country, and it has the largest levels of non-employment anywhere in the country. Just by building the games or building the park, it does not mean we're going to transfer, transform people's lives in the East End. And the question I got asked by a French journalist yesterday, I did say to them, we won, you didn't, ha-ha, but that's neither here nor there. The question I got asked was, you put in the bid book that you were going to transform the East End. Where's the mechanism for that? And that's a really good question, because the, the truth is, we didn't have a mechanism for transforming the East End. Yes, we build a park, yes, it will be great, but the park's interesting, because John quoted 20% of people come from the local area. Hey, guess what? In my borough, we've had the biggest increase in national insurance applications from foreign, from foreign people anywhere in the country. Massive numbers of people have come to live in the borough, <laughs> and in Hackney, and in Tower Hamlets, and in Greenwich, and in Waltham Forest, to work on this. And just because they've got a postcode in my borough doesn't mean that it's actually transforming my borough. And one of the things we've said is, could we have the addresses? And we'll tell you how many of them were actually resident there. <coughs> it has helped. Some people have got jobs. You spend £9.3 billion, you better get some jobs. But there isn't the fundamental change that we need. So what's happened is the five boroughs, and we're going to claim, the five boroughs got together and said, right, we need to have a vision. And the vision should be convergence. And that means that over the next 20 years, the East End of London, on child poverty, on health, on employment, should move towards the London average. It's a century we haven't managed it. So we've said, let's take the Olympics and use that inspiration and say, let's transform and move it. And for the... If without the Olympics, we would not have got the agreement, I think, of both the mayor and government that, trans that convergence would be the challenge that we go for. Now, we've said we're going to do it. How serious are we about it? Because any of you can say, hey, I'll do tons of good stuff. Have you ever heard a politician say, I'll do lots of good stuff, and then doesn't deliver? Well, it doesn't happen in Newham, but it happens elsewhere, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's an election, you guys. You have to cut me a little slack at the moment, right? <laughs> So, for example, the questions we will say is it isn't just about money, it's about giving us powers. Newham has a whole host of things it wants to do. One of the things we're saying is we want to borrow money to buy housing. And we want permission, because we have to get permission, we haven't got the powers you might think we ought to have. We want permission to be able to borrow. We don't want the money, we want to borrow the money from banks, assuming the banks will give anybody money other than just because they'll have their bonuses to pay. We want to borrow money in order to do stuff in housing in Newham and create an asset. Perfectly reasonable thing. I could spend 20 minutes telling you why. But the point is it's about trying to transform the place. We want that power. If we're serious about transforming, we've got a park, it's going to be a great park. Who's going to run it? Is it going to be Lee Valley Regional Park, with people run by people from Essex and Hearts, or is it going to be a royal park? Which it ought to be if we're really serious about transforming the East End. Why is it good enough for people in the extreme west of London at Hyde Park, because that's the extreme west of London, why is, it, why is it good enough for them to have a, a, a royal park and not for the people of the East End to have a royal park and a high-quality park? Those are the sort of things we now have to say to politicians. If convergence is going to work, you need to now carry it forward. The five boroughs fought to get that convergence. It wouldn't have happened without us. We've come together uh, as a group to demand that. And so my challenge is this from the Olympics. Yes, this could be something that will transform the greatest area of poverty in Europe. 
The inspiration, I've always believed it was inspiration. I wanted to be on the LOCOG board, not the ODA board, because I think it's the inspiration of the games and the investment in people that matter. It is no good putting a physical thing in place if you don't inspire people. And I'll finish on this. One of the things we've done in Newham, we've got, and, and each of the boroughs, we've got our own work brokerage scheme. So we've got workplace which gets 3,000 people into work. But we started an employment project, and we said, anybody who's been long-term unemployed or never worked, if you're worse off working, our borough will pay the difference from benefit to work. Interestingly, the government's picked that up now. Uh, and, and just, if there's any journalists here, you might want to see the government pick that up from Newham. We'd be very happy to. That's about investing in people. That's what we have to do. That will see whether or not the Olympics has actually made a difference and that the pain was worth the gain. Thank you very much, Rob. And we can tell you're a politician. You've been, you, you were one minute over. So now we go to our techie of the day. Can I describe you as a techie, Stuart? I don't mind. Not many people will call me that, but okay, I don't mind. OK, all right. Well, to me, you're a techie anyway, because you're the <laughs> vice president of BT London 2012 Delivery Programme, which means you have overall responsibility for the delivery of the communications technology. Um, you've got 30 years' experience at BT, uh, where you joined as a systems engineer. So... Come on, uh, Stuart, tell us how you're going to do it and tell us perhaps a little bit about how you're going to um, deter those cyber terrorists. Well, um, thank you. And Robin, that was a good introduction uh, to, to my part. I think what our job with BT, we're the official comms partner for both the Olympic and the Paralympic Games. And from a game point of view, the company is absolutely thrilled that we are involved with what I hope is going to be putting UK PLC back on a very strong position on the globe. And I think it's created a very slow drumbeat in the company, which is getting louder and louder. And I think when it got to 1,000 days and we started the large screen that you see at the top of the BT Tower... Uh, the number of people who stop me in the corridors of BT and just ask questions about 2012 is quite phenomenal. Our job is a very silent job. Our job is to make sure everyone in this room, your families, the rest of the world, see a flawless games. Just watch what they want to see when they want to see it. And on that very point, Beijing was about 30% digital coverage this will be 100% digital coverage. So any sport you want to see, you'll be able to see in high definition at the times you want to see. And it's going to be the most advanced technological games. Again, another movement. Now the iPhone is with us. The mobile usage will change from a high percentage of voice to a high percentage of data. And that's a big movement in four years. There are 94 locations across the UK. It isn't just London-centric. It's Cardiff, Glasgow, Weymouth, many areas around the country with 600 training camps for the athletes. But my job is to connect 94 venues. It's some 80,000 connections. It's 14,000 mobile phones, 1,000 wireless circuits. It's 16,500 fixed lines. And the data that goes across this is every image, every piece of data, every email, every phone call, every text message. And it's equivalent to about six gigabytes every second. 
And if you wanted to say this at a dinner party, you can say that's equivalent to 6,000 novels every five seconds or the entire contents of Wikipedia every five seconds. The volume metrics are huge. One agency in Beijing in a 13-hour period positioned 80,000 digital photos over the network. So it's just our job is to make sure it's a wonderful experience. There's 24 large screens that are going to go across the country, and these will be like Hemman Hill type environments, where you'll have you know, this cultural uh, thing happening in Sunderland or in Leeds, where you can actually use them in an interactive way with other cities and friends across the nation. So that's what we're, we're doing. If you had to say, are you worried about anything? Well, I was thrilled, like the rest of you, when Usain Bolt actually hit 10 0.68 seconds for the 100 meters and he's done I think 10.58 since or four and he's going to do even better and when I saw it I thought oh my word if for one 10 second period the network didn't work I wouldn't want it to be when Usain Bolt was running so the amount of resilience and contingency I have my alpha team on there we're going through a design phase. We'll go through to implementation and service where we'll have upwards of 800 people making sure that you don't see anything other than the athletes performing. Your point about cyber attack, yeah, we have one of my other contracts is defense. One of my other contracts is Department of Work and Pensions. I run those as well. We have to be on top of our game with security at internet gateway level, at web hosting level. The web hosting for this site will be the biggest you've ever seen, the amount of hits it's going to take. So the pain for us is making sure we get our service right. And our testing starts in June 2011, when I think there's 54 test events, sporting test events, and we're on our game from that moment. Well, we, we certainly know now that if the network crashes, we know who to write about. So yeah. you can look forward. We, we hope we won't have to... to I'm on a plane to Rio. Yeah, OK. <laughs> One way, I hope. Um, right. Do it all again. <laughs> right, our next speaker um, is um, just 20 years old. She was brought up in Bow and uh, is watching to see how the Olympics will change her area and inspire young people. Uh, she's currently volunteering at the Media Trust as part of their filmmaking talent studio project. So we'd love to hear your perspective, Maria, on the 2012 Games, and let us hear a little bit about your hopes and fears. Mm. Over to you, Maria. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I think it will be extremely beneficial. It's, to me, the Olympics means just inspiration and motivation. Every time I see it, I just get really, really excited. I mean, my sister's had some embarrassing moments where she just yelled at the TV, go on, go on, like embarrassingly and but that's the kind of thing that the Olympics brings out it makes people it, I mean young people have a lot of ambition but when you see something as grand and magnificent as the Olympics it's just so inspiring and it's just incredible and I, I just I can't wait I can't wait for it and the fact that we're having it it's like 15 minutes away from me it's unbelievable it's just so cool it's like it's in Stratford. It's amazing. And <laughs> I can't get over it. It's in Stratford. <laughs> and um, it, for me, the reality, the benefits, it, it's already been a reality for me because my area has been 
a quiet rundown for some time. And when I'm just in the car, like going shopping with my mum and dad, a friend who lives uh, in Watford would, would, would come with me and be like, What's happening here? Well, that wasn't there last time I was here. I was like, Oh, yeah, we're having the Olympics. Yeah. It's like, it's the Olympics. And, and it's, just, it's just, there's lots of, it's just really cleared up. The buildings, it just looks so much more brighter. And when you're in a place that, you know, lots of my friends would say, they would say, Oh, you know, I can't wait to get out of here. It's just a rubbish hole. It's a hellhole. I'm depressed. I hate it here. I just want to go somewhere where it's nice. They're a lot more, like, they respect it a lot more, and it's a lot more of a pleasure to be around because you're proud of it. And it, it just makes you feel like, wow, I can't believe it. It's just, it's just looks so, it just it makes, you, it makes you feel better as a person when you're, you know, when you're surrounded by that kind of stuff. And I think that it definitely, like, I think the benefits will go way beyond the actual, um, the actual events. I think that a lot more people, a lot more young people will get really involved with um, with sports events, with just sports in general, and again, just even after the Olympics is gone, it will just be like a level, a new level of respect. I think will be reached definitely, and the Olympics definitely, 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 it's just it's just so it's so motivational. It's just that young people will really, 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 really benefit from it. Just just to have it so near as well. I think. You know, even after I see the Olympics, when it's like in China, I want to go and do swimming more. I want to go and, um, and play, you know, and do some like tennis. And I don't even want to imagine how amazing it's going to be when it's just around the corner. It's just going to be awesome. And, you know, sports people and politicians, they do get a lot of media coverage when it comes to their involvement in London 2012. But I think sometimes the mainstream media can ignore young people's voices. And Media Trust wants young people to. Me Trust wants the, wants the media to support and report on the Olympics and how it's affecting young people. We, we can offer a fresh and honest perspective about it. And, and, and projects like Talent Studio, which is run by Media Trust, ensures that uh, well, it equips young people with the skills and the experience that they need. And any films that we create is broadcast nationally on the community channel, which is owned by Media Trust. And just by being here today, being able to speak today, is just a great example of how Media Trust ensures that young people's voices are heard. And we're going to be living with the legacy of the Olympics. So it's just unbelievable. I just think it's going to be extremely positive. Maria, thank you very much. That really was spoken from the heart, and um, it's good to see you performing so well. I think you're going to be a politician too, so well done. Um, my, our, our next speaker is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan, we're really, really pleased that you could come today, a real bonus to the panel. Um, uh, we hardly need to introduce you. You're, I mean, we can all still, I'm sure, remember that great moment in the Sydney Games in 2000 with the, with the triple jump. I mean, it really was a defining moment, and I hope there'll be many more like that for the uh, British athletes of 2012. You're currently, um, I think, the only person in the room who's actually competed in the Olympics. Any other one? Please stand up. No, I don't think so. Um, now, of course, you do a lot of charity work, but you are playing a key part in the Olympics uh, for 2012 on the LOCOG uh, committee as the athlete representative, and, of course, you were a bid ambassador. So, um, can there be a sports legacy, or is that a leap of faith too far? You're in the 
starting blocks. Thank you very much, Thank Jonathan. you. Let me just start by picking up something that Maria said about getting young people involved in the games, because that's something that really is at the heart of London 2012. It's what Seb spoke about in Singapore. And there's one particular uh, scheme that we've supported through the Inspire programme, which is the non-commercial use of the brand, it's something we're very proud of at LOCOG, using our brand to recognise outstanding uh, projects around the country, you know, not making, just simply making money from it. There's one called Supporter to Reporter, which takes uh, young people from disadvantaged backgrounds who love sport, but then puts them behind the camera, behind the microphone. And um, wherever you go and do something Olympic or Paralympic, they're there reporting on the story. And I recently heard one of the young people talk about how this had transformed his life. He never thought he could do something like that. And it's a small example, but it's about how the Olympics and Paralympics and the motivation you talked about can change, change people's lives. And this, I think, was at the heart of the bit. It was about making life better for people. And um, the, the question, I think, evokes memories for me of my athletics career because, you know, no pain, no gain was what my coaches said to me on many, many occasions. And uh, I remember competing in 1997 in the World Championships in Athens, and I didn't end up getting the colour of medal that I wanted. I went back to the hotel and there was this beautiful buffet spread out of all the chocolate cakes and sweets that you could hope to imagine. And I had the medal in my pocket, which was the wrong colour. I looked at those things that I had denied myself for the last year and thought it wasn't worth it. So I, <laughs> so I, I agree with Robin in that it is up for grabs without any question. I think... Unlike any Olympic and Paralympics Games previously, we have thought about legacy from the very start. Um, that, you know, in every conversation we have, we think about games time and we think about legacy. So we have the best chance to make it work. But as, you know, as Robin has, has rightly said, there are, there, there are challenges, as John has said as well. So I think we'll only be able to really answer that question come maybe 2014, 2015, 2016. But one particular thing on the sports participation front is if we can move the needle from here to here in terms of the health of the nation. And you look at the health service budget on a yearly basis of, I think, of £110 billion uh, and what potentially can be saved over, let's say, a decade. The numbers will, the metrics will just add up. I think we can, if, if we get it right, and that, yeah, going back to the wrong spot, if we get it right. But I don't want to forget, because what LOCOG does is put the games on and, and our money is, is privately financed, obviously comes from sponsors like BT, one of our Tier 1 sponsors, so we're privately financed at a £2 billion budget. Getting the games right, I think, is crucial to the legacy. It's not a side issue. And I know you said, Robin, the medals don't matter. But having won my medal in Sydney on the night that Cathy Freeman won her gold medal for Australia, it somehow symbolised, uh, I think, for the Australians, the success of hosting the games. They'd done a great job putting on the games, but they needed men and women in, British in Australian best, in that case, winning gold medals. And I think that the halo effect around what we hope will be the legacy can be impacted negatively through us putting on a poor game. So I think it is absolutely right. Those six weeks um, in the summer of 2012 are brilliant for this country to feel proud of itself and its ability to put on the greatest show on earth uh, and having men and women um, in British Vets doing well and essentially, I think, symbolising the success of the Games. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You're, well, you're a great ambassador for sport and, and also a great optimist, so let's all hope that you'll prove to be, to be right. Um, our last speaker is um, one of our most distinguished sports journalists. He's a writer and broadcaster I've known for many years and have worked with him. And until recently, he was, of course, the BBC's first sports editor. Uh, 
with a brief for investigation and analysis. Uh, he had many scoops, including stories about the Olympics, so he can tell us a bit about that. He's won many awards and written 22 books, um, and he now writes a column for The Evening Standard, which I'm delighted about. So he's a great catch for them. Um, no doubt, uh, Mirho, you will have a very high profile in the 2012 Olympics. So, Mirho Bose, I'd like to ask you to have your five minutes on the platform. Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. It's always difficult to follow um, Jonathan. Um, I, I think one of the problems with this Olympics is that um, it's a bit like that Mark Twain character, Topsy, has just grown, you know, because the fact is that nobody expected London to win. And not only nobody expected, people in London didn't expect, the people organizing the bid didn't expect, which is why we have that ridiculous budget figure of 2.375 billion, because as Treasury officials will tell you, they didn't look at the figure. It's only when London won, they came back and they started looking at the figure, and the figure went up to 9.375 billion. Now, why does that matter? It matters because, I don't know if you ever see, you all should see the video that London presented when we won at Singapore. It's a wonderful video. Now, even Sebco's most ardent admirer, and I'm a great admirer of the fact that he's a Chelsea supporter, would say that he doesn't compare with Catherine Deneuve. The Paris had Catherine Deneuve. There was Sebco saying that if you give us the games, we will convert um, the black kids in Soweto from throwing stones into becoming great Olympians. So London made some extraordinary claims that it's going to be a game changer. It is going to change not only London, it's going to change not only sport in this country, but it's going to change the kids in Soweto. Now, having made those claims, you know, those are very bold claims to make, which is why one IRC member who voted for London came out to me and said the British behave like the French and the French behave like the British, which is why probably we, <laughs> probably we won in, in Singapore. I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine Jonathan Edwards being French, but nevertheless, um, you know, it was something like that. The, the point about that is, is that going to be a game changer? No, we're going to present great games, no question about it. John Ahmed will do a good job despite his Arsenal credentials and, you know, um, and, you know the, the, the theatre stage will be perfect and those wonderful 16 days will, will be great. Um, and our athletes will do well. But actually, it's important to realise that our athletes don't need to do well bec because the games are in London. We are on the upward curve since Sydney because a lot of lottery money has gone into elite sport. So even if the games were held in Paris, we would have done quite well. OK, there might be an additional factor in London. But what I'm not sure about, and I'm very sceptical, is whether we'll get the legacy right and whether there will be a game changer. I mean, the legacy problem has always been, as somebody said, legacy in Olympic Games don't actually create legacy. They create a wonderful sunrise and a very short sunset, as somebody said. And, and, and the point about um, a game changer is it's not going to be a game changer because we are a very strange sporting country. We created the sports in the world, or at least codified the laws. The Chinese claim to have created football, but that's a debatable proposition we need to go into now. Um, and, 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 but what, what we are, we are not actually, there is no such thing as a British team in football, in hockey, in cricket. You know, in the only time we come together is, is in the Olympics. Now, and this country is terribly skewed towards football. That has increased in the last, few, last 20 years or so. And I don't see that aspect of, of it changing. So while the Olympics will be great, and it's very nice to hear um, um, you know, that 20-year-olds are, 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 are enthused about the games, but that is not going to change in the sense that suddenly the minor sports and other sports, or is going to be, there's going to be a balance in the sport. And the question of legacy, I mean, Robin didn't mention it. Robin would have loved his beloved West Ham, I'm told, is his second beloved after Kilmarnock, um, to, to go into the stadium. But actually, there are no plans yet for the stadium. Yes, the government is looking at it. Legacy has been talked about. Jonathan says it's been talked about. But actually, it's only now that legacy plans are being laid, whether 
by 2012, after 2012, those facilities would be properly used or not is a very, very debatable proposition. You go around Sydney, you go around Athens, you go around even the, the bird's nest in Beijing, perhaps the most iconic Olympic stadium created, um, and, and they're not being used. And, and that, that is really the fundamental issue, which I think for all the, the pain uh, that people will, are, are bearing, government money, lottery money of over two billion, and people are buying lottery <laughs> tickets for the Olympics, I'm not sure that at the end of the day we'll have wonderful games and Britain will be high up in the, in the, in the medals table, I have no doubt about that. But at the end of it, whether it'll change the way we treat sports, you know, the way in school sports, for instance. I mean, it's very interesting statistics in Beijing. 32% of our elite athletes came from private schools. The state schools still do not have um, uh, a competition because competition was something that went out of fashion in the 1980s and it hasn't come back. And if it doesn't come back, if that change doesn't happen, then there is, if you like, no game change. And my, my great concern is that we'll have the great games, but we won't have a great change in the way we look at sports generally. Mihir, thank you very much. That was a, a probably welcome dose of scepticism. Uh, a very good journalist, clearly, um, before we start the, uh, the wider debate with our audience. So um, I'd just like to remind everybody that uh, the event is being televised and podcast. So um, you must wait for the microphone to reach you. When it does reach you and you have your question, please make it succinct and clear. And if you want to address it to one individual member of the panel, please do that. But also, please don't forget to say who you are and if you represent an organization, which one. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the floor is yours. And um, now, who will be first? We've got four microphones uh, around the room. So perhaps if you could put your hand up quickly now, if you want to go first, and we will get the microphones too. Let's get the debate going. Right, we have... Hello, Tim Crow from Synergy Sponsorship. Um, for the whole panel, actually, because we've talked a lot, you've talked a lot about sport this morning, um, and I should say that the, the context of, of why I'm here, what I do, is interesting what you had to say, because we represent the, some of the sponsors who are involved with the games. And I think one something that a, a phrase that I always remember about the Olympics, which struck a chord with me, is that saying that the Olympics is about sports is a bit like saying that Live Aid was about the music because it actually is about something bigger than sport. Um, question is actually about the Cultural Olympiad, because, of course, um, quite a lot of people in this country aren't really into sport. And there's an argument that says, if you want people to change their behaviour and use the Olympics as a mechanism to inspire people to change behaviour, talking to them about sport and elite sport is the wrong thing to do. So my question is, uh, what's the panel's view around the importance of the Cultural Olympiad and the role of the Olympics in talking to people about more than sport, other things than sport? Right. Perhaps we'll take a, a second question so that we can then answer them together. Sure. Uh, I'm Derek Wyatt. I'm a member of Parliament. I chair the Olympic group in the House of Commons. Could I just say, but without Mirhir's work in the Daily Telegraph, I don't think this country would have been interested in the Olympics. He was quite modest about what he did, but he did actually write, continued to say we should take it. And many politicians said no. So I think, Mir here, well done you. My question is, I spent nearly a year to bring a sport to the stadium post-212, but we found that the organisation within uh, the Olympics didn't actually want to give it to one single sport. 
And the fact of the matter is, if you don't give it to a single sport, you don't get the sponsorship and the ownership and, and build, build the brand and build the community sport around it. And so I am very apprehensive, actually, that anyone will now come to take the, the stadium. Please tell me I'm wrong. Right, let's, let's break off now, because I do think the issue of the stadium is an absolutely critical one. And um, I don't know if any particular member of the panel, perhaps um, John and then um, Robin, you'd like to say a few words about that, because I do think that's important. And then perhaps Mia here can chip in. Um, and also, please do mention the cultural Olympiad, which with the shorter of time we've excluded, but I think is also interesting. So, John, what would you like to say about the stadium and its future? Well, I think you need to go back and um, recognise that part of the bid was that London would, would provide an international standard athletic stadium. That was a commitment that at the end of the Games, part of the legacy was a stadium for athletes. Um, and therefore that became a, a driving element of the design. And, therefore, and equally, if you did a business case for the stadium, people would say that there was not a case for another 80,000-seat stadium in London. So we have consciously designed the stadium uh, to be flexible, and in fact we can reduce it from 80,000 seats to 25,000 seats post the Games. And we've designed it with that in, that in mind. We basically lift off the top two-thirds and we're left with a, a classic athletics bowl of 25,000 seats. Having done that, of course, and people come to site now and you go up into the 80,000-seat stadium and they turn to me and say, you're not seriously going to take this down, John, are you? Uh, and, of course, that leads to the whole discussion about and, and Margaret Ford and the Olympic Legacy Company are now looking at what are the options. And we've done every option you might imagine, 80,000, 55,000, 35,000, 25,000. What do you What do you do? I, I don't get so concerned about the fact that we haven't identified what is it is going to be used for because I think we have that fundamental requirement for 25,000 seats. People are now realising that it is actually a very intimate stadium, despite its 80,000 seat size, and therefore some of the concerns about having an athletics track around a football pitch or whatever else are not necessarily as much of a problem. Um, so the discussions, I think, will just continue as to whether it should have a single owner. Uh, ideally, it would have a single owner who then was prepared to let it out for whatever was required, whether it was athletics, whether it was Amer American football, which potentially it could be used for, or baseball, or all the other things, uh, rock concerts, whatever. Um, what you need is, is somebody, and I accept, who is prepared <coughs> to take control of it and then sees it as an asset and then constantly goes out and sells it because I think it is in such, it, again, I come back to the point, it is in such a fantastic location. It is one of the best connected places in London, far easier to get to than Wembley. Uh, and therefore people will want to actually use it, they will want to go to it, and I am very confident that in fact it will uh, have a multiple number of uses, but I may come back to my first point, we do have an obligation to ensure that we've provided a first-class athletics track to provide really good uh, uh, opportunity for people. We've, we plan to put a, um, plans to put a, um, an, acade uh, an academic institution around it so it becomes a centre for athletics, not only just the running element of it, but all the other aspects of athletics. So uh, Thank you, John. I'm very optimistic. That, 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 that's obviously um, <clears throat> the... the, the uh, 
the, the PR line, but I mean, the fact PR is, line? but it's who is actually going to take control of the stadium? That is the question. Who's going to pay for it? Now, Margaret, Margaret Ford at the moment has the responsibility as the legacy company to identify who yes. will take. Mihir, would you like to come in on this? I know this is something you would feel very strongly about. Is there anyone, do you, do you know of anyone on the horizon? Well, the, the point about that John has said, um, we had to make a commitment to athletics um, to, to provide a stadium. One of the reasons we had to make a commitment to athletics at the bid is, is worth recalling, is that just before that, Britain had given back the International Athletics Championship and joined the ranks of Colombia, the country that gave that back the World Cup, hosting the World Cup in 86. So Britain had to give that commitment to make sure that the votes from, from, from the, 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 the athlete, athletic members of the uh, IOC and others um, would come in. The point about it is that actually, um, when, when the bid was done, Ken Livingston did a back-of-envelope calculation and said he would pay $10 million a year to, to run the facilities, and that is the money on the table. Now, I don't know what Boris Johnson is going to say or do. He's, he's had his doubts about the, that sort of money. The, the, the problem is Robin, uh, I'm sure, will say he would have wanted, have loved his, his beloved West Ham to go. Now, of course, if West Ham get relegated, they probably would be able to go into that stadium, and, you know, um, and, you know because they wouldn't probably need an 80,000-seater stadium. But, you know, that, that is a possibility, perhaps, you know, a, a game-changing thing. But, but there, there, there is a po the, the question about athletics, it's, very, it's all very well to say we need an athletic stadium, but athletics anywhere around the world doesn't make money. You need an anchor tenant which makes money, and the only anchor tenant that can really make money is an ongoing football club which will bring in regular customers. And if I'm not mistaken, John, you have, I think, in the lease commitment of that area, a restriction about a football club coming in anyway. So that would cause a further problem. So can, there are all sorts of problems can bring, there. Can I bring Robin in on this? Because I think, um, Robin, obviously, you, know, you want to see a stadium it, that is alive, that is bringing thousands of people to your area. Yeah. But do you actually want a football club in the stadium? Yeah, yeah, we even put up with Spurs. Well, that, well, that <laughs> keen to have it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, was asked, I was asked, would you have Spurs? I said, no, we want the big club. But, but <laughs> any Spurs voters in Newham should ignore that, by the way. Absolutely. It is ab I'm sorry, it was stupid not to have that stadium as a football stadium because it would have attracted people and would work as a stadium. It is not going to work on any basis. Yes, we'll get some, some stuff in. Yes, we'll have a, a studio school, which we were keen to have. Yes, it should be linked to... to should London have an athletics stadium? Yes, of course it should. And what we should have said was, we'll put it somewhere else. But not there. Not at that size. At 25,000, who's going to use it at 25,000 at, at, at that part of London? It isn't going to work. We should have, but we are now where we are. Yeah, where we are now. What I hope we can still get West Ham into the stadium. Um, because actually, if you look at West Ham fans, they all come mostly from out east. And, and actually, Stratford's a perfect place for, 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 for West Ham. That would be perfect. It would allow them to then grow, because it is actually quite big. It's about the sixth biggest supported club in the country. So it's about the sixth biggest supporter. So it could do quite well. Plus, with the extra seats, that would let some of our kids get in for cheaper. And it would, it would actually be quite good and maybe bring some of that sport back to some of the locals. And, and some of the, so that's what... I mean, you can ask the same of the aquatics, where we tried to get a, a leisure pool in. And because of the design of the building, we can't do that. The cycling... We talk about those. I would just say the cycling appears to be incredibly successful. And we should pass ourselves in the back and say, cycling... They had people that were doing the cycling, they understood what they wanted, cycling looks very good, and that's a positive thing. Truth is that the stadium, of course, we, everybody focuses, all the media focus on it, that is not the issue. The stadium, it would be nice to get it right, that is not going to transform the East End of London. It would be nice to have done the right mm -hmm. thing, it would be nice to still do the right thing and get West Ham in there, 
But it's small scale beside the scale. When the Olympic Park is finished, we're going to have eight development sites, huge development sites, plonk in the middle of London. We have the largest urban shopping centre in Europe going up next to it. What an opportunity we've got there. That's what the debate should be about. But we all focus on the stadium because we made a mistake. And it was a mistake. We should recognise that as a mistake and try and recover it now and get West Thank Ham you. in. Or oh, not on the cultural legacy. You're, you're, I think one of the things... Yes, I was going to come back to the cultural legacy in a second. But if you'd like to... Do you want to just say something quickly I just on think that? we should be thinking about mass participation. The same way in sport, it's an opportunity with the inspiration to get people in mass participation. We should think about the cultural thing as a mass participation thing and think of how we might do it. One of the things we're going to be launching shortly is to give every kid in our school two years of music lessons and a free instrument to try to get mass participation and get them all taking part. From that, you can build all sorts of arts platforms if you can get people. So anything that will get kids involved or people involved and excited, we should be doing it. Stuart, you wanted to say uh, something I was just, You're starting to bridge into the cultural area there, but you know, I really truly believe that two things make the next stage happen. One is leadership and one is market forces. There is £20 billion worth, some economists believe, of activity going to happen around UK PLC because of 2012 Games. And that in its very self will create more communities, more business opportunities, transform the way employers work with their organisation, uh, flexible working. It's going to change things quite dramatically. The five boroughs will start being much more interdependent with each other, central government will get more involved. The trouble we have is trying to wish something now before it's happened. Look how all of us felt about the O2 arena. It was just a dead duck, and now it's the number one customer experience, client experience uh, venue in the world, and I think that's the difference. I do think it needs leadership from government. I think it needs leadership from the private sector, people like John and Sir Robin here, to actually help drive the agenda. So there's a bridge between 2012 and the next part of our, our sort of Good. life after the Games. Thank you very much. Well, what, you're, what I think you're saying is have faith. So there, let's, there is, hear, let's, I, let's hear, let's hear yeah, from the I audience. I think it's probably true. I, we, I think we should, we should take some more questions, perhaps somebody who doesn't have faith. Come on, oh, who have we got here who's uh, at, the, at the back row? And then we'll take Nick in the front. Nick? Yes. yes. If you'd like to stand up, Hi, thank you. Uh, Ollie Barrett, make your mark with a tenor. Um, for some reason over the last year, I've lost a little bit of faith in this whole art of predicting things. And it's all very well to have the optimists lined up against the pessimists. I'm very interested in the panel's very specific examples from the last 10, 20, 100 years of the Olympics, wherever you care to go back to, about specific examples or cautionary tales of where the Olympics is thought to have had a really positive upswing, whether it's in the national health or well-being or economic uh, factors, creation of jobs, things that we can really point to and say, don't believe what I say, but talk to X or Y or whatever city you care to mention. That's what I'm really interested in. Thank you. So what is your actual question to the panel? What are your specific examples from previous hosts of the Games right. which would give us cause for optimism? So no predictions, just examples from history. Fine. And Nick, would you like to come in? Would that be a good moment for you? Yeah. Yeah, just to focus that even a little bit more, Stuart mentioned 20 billion of activity. Um, Nick Rosen from finance2012.com, uh, which is a site about the finances of the Olympics. 20 billion of activity, at a guess, is perhaps two or three billion for the Treasury uh, in revenues. Can anybody tell me 
how much money Britain will make out of the games eventually? I mean, I know it's a bit of a tedious question, but if the pain's worth the gain, we should make some money out of it, right? Right, let's um, immediately turn to John to see if you can conjure up a figure for us. <laughs> no, I can't conjure up an immediate figure. That has, has already been said. Um, I think it was Lloyd's Bank who actually uh, said that they forecast that um, the, there would be 20 billion of economic activity as a consequence of the, of the games, which clearly generates revenue. But I think the more important thing is that economic activity means jobs. Uh, and it means business, and it, it means money circulating in the economy. And therefore, if you've created an extra 20 billion of uh, money going around the system, um, then that must benefit um, most people in, in some way, um, including that which flows from taxes. In response to the previous question, uh, Barcelona is seen as um, a very good example of regeneration and the regeneration of the docks area of Barcelona and the housing which went uh, up in Barcelona as, a, as, as part of the Olympic Games is very much seen as having been a major success and a major benefit to Barcelona. Perhaps we could bring Jonathan in um, on the, your, with your experience of yeah. previous games, and for example, Sydney and possibly Barcelona, if you, if you have a view about the po positive benefits. I, mean, I, think, I think a negative and a positive. No games has shown a long-term increase in sports participation. That, that is a fact. So I think when we talk about that, we recognise, as Robin said, it's, it's up for grabs, um, but that's something clearly which is a challenge, and, and everybody you know, who's involved within sport in this country is working very sh hard to make sure that happens. Um, it, it's still early days, but I would say that um, the Paralympics in Beijing had an incredibly positive impact on the way disability was viewed in China, uh, and okay, we'll have to see how that plays out. Barcelona, again, is the obvious example. But, um, yeah, I would, I would say Paralympics in Beijing. Thank you. I'm very grateful to you for raising the subject of the Paralympics, which I do think is going to be very important. And with Channel 4 just signing up, that's a great step. Miha, I think you'd like to chip in. Yeah, I thought. think when we talk about what, is the, what the Games do for a city, we've got to understand that London is unique. It's the first city, and probably the only city ever, that will have hosted three Games. And London didn't need the Games to validate itself. Sydney needed the Games to bring Australia down from down under and prove, you know, whatever, that it's no longer a nation of convicts or what, what have you. Um, 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 you know, China wanted to prove it can take on the best in the world. Uh, Athens, which was actually quite insecure, wanted to show that a country of 10 million people could host the game. Barcelona was coming in from the cold, from Madrid and so on. London doesn't need all that. So if you like, the East End regeneration is a very special... It's almost as if the games are not in London. But there's a city called the East End of London, which is hosting the game. So you've got to be careful on that. So, you know, in that sense, economic activity is always very difficult to measure. When, when the last major event that was held in this country, Euro 96, uh, the FA made a loss and, and it didn't have any economic gain at all. So, I mean, people will always come to London. Yes, they might well be, we might well be able to measure some increased economic activity, but the government is now justifying spending the money as, as uh, Keynesian economics, you know, going in and, and rebuilding and so on. But the one good thing, I mean, what, what one must realize about the Olympics is the Olympics is a franchise operation of the International Olympic Committee. It's like having, a, having McDonald's for 18, 17 days. And precisely, they have very specific requirements as to what you can do with the Olympics ring. For instance, how high the athletes village can be, not more than uh, seven floors to make sure that the athletes get in time uh, to, their, um, to their starting blocks and so on, you know. They don't want to deprive anybody like Jonathan Edwards of getting another medal. Stuart, I think you wanted yeah, to have uh, a quick 
You, you can see I'm an optimist about this, um, but it is my first Olympic Games. But I can only give you a perspective of business. The amount of companies that talk to me personally and my team about what we're doing in the Olympics. And the, uh, my CEO, Ian Livingston, his expectations on the transformation, the growth of this company because of its pivotal position in helping put on the Games would happen in most companies if they focus and only about 50% of chief execs, executive boards know at the moment in their own geographical area the impact of what the games will do. So I think, again, UK PLC, the companies getting involved will regenerate and it's a quiet revolution, a quiet growth that you won't see specifically because of the games. Well, unfortunately we haven't got a figure out of anyone for Nick, but anyway, I hope that was uh, helpful. Um, next question. Uh, one from the back row and one from the front row, please. Thank you very much. Hi, Caroline Deal. I'm Chief Executive at the Media Trust. Um, going back to the, the original vision of the Games to transform the whole country and ordinary people across the country, communities across the country, the election manifestos are being drafted now. What's the one thing that the panel would like to see written into the election manifestos that will really make a difference, that game-changing aspect that Mia has talked about, to the most disadvantaged communities across the country? Right, that's a very good question, which I think can be answered in one very short sentence by each of the panellists. But first, we'll hear from uh, the lady in the front row. Um, hello, my, my name is Barbara Gunnell. Um, I'm a journalist, and like Maria, I live in Bow. And I wake up every morning and I look down the road and I see the cranes and I just think it's uh, fantastic too. Um, I'm particularly interested in, in what John and, uh, and Robin uh, um, said um, about the progress and about um, the, uh, I think it was uh, Robin who questioned slightly whether the jobs were coming to the area. And um, I'd like to know, and I think this also goes um, in the context of the Cultural Olympiad as well, that how we're going to, assure, uh, to ensure that there are more Marias, in fact, and that these jobs really do benefit um, the East End. And I, mean, I just want to echo very much as a resident um, what uh, Sir Robin said, which is that it's just incredible how over the decades this area has completely and utterly resisted regeneration. And it is, it's slightly alarming to see that even with this sort of fantastic project just within sight of everyone, it still seems to be resisting the sort of social regeneration of the area. Not the, inf the infrastructure is going marvellously, but the social regeneration not. Good. Well, it's great to have a note of optimism from the audience. Shall we deal with the, the question about the election manifestos? So we're get, you can have literally one sentence each. So start with John and whiz down the row. One thing you'd like to see in the election manifestos. I think one thing we've learnt from, uh, from this project uh, is the power of public procurement. And what I would like to see is governments committing in the future to using public procurement to do two things. One, drive the carbon agenda and their expectations of that, and secondly, training, and using public procurement to drive the training agenda. Well, other than a royal park for Newham, which would be fine, um, you asked in the context of sport. I think a recognition that the mass participation in sport, and indeed that would be culture too, uh, is a task that's primarily one that local authorities and schools do, and a recognition that money and support and resource should be put into that area to build the mass participation from which will flow the opportunity to have elite athletes. 
Thank you, Stuart. Yeah, if it's just around sport, uh, I would echo some of what Robin said. I think it's a small world now, and having this country move up the medal table in terms of sporting activity over a continued period is uh, a lasting legacy of this game. So I'd like the government to put more money and more structure around it, especially in the secondary school education area. I agree, I agree with these guys, <laughs> um, especially with, with schools and, and with um, and just the uh, awareness of sports and activity, I think that's what I think would be cool about it. Jonathan, I don't think you disagree with that. I don't think I disagree with it. Potentially, though, something around physical literacy testing in schools, we test academically, and of course schools have to focus on it because they have to pass the test. If we're going to take sports and physical activity seriously, we may need to think of actually ways of measuring that as well, so it is around school sport. Good. And Mihir? Uh, I think I would like politicians to say that they sh should stop displaying themselves as sporting events, which they do increasingly, and for the first time, and we are about the only major country that does not have a cabinet minister of sport, and we do not have a joined-up government in sport, where sport is still split between DCMS and health, which is one of the main reasons why in schools and things like that, sports do not get on. And we, I would like to see a cabinet minister of sport, and I would have nominated Derek Wyatt, but I think he might struggle to save his seat. So, um, so but, you know, um, he's gone now. Oh, he's, uh, um, he's, he's gone back to his constituency. But um, um, the... the, the, the you know, that is what I'd like to see as a firm resolve, that sports matters and there's a heavyweight person and a heavyweight department to look after sports. Good. So split, split the department. Right. Next questions from the floor. We're, right. We've got a sudden... Oh, jobs. Well, I think perhaps we can wrap that, in, wrap that into uh, the next one because we, we want to move on and I think there'll be an opportunity to come to jobs. So uh, the two gentlemen at the back, uh, the gentleman with the... Hi, Alan Gemmell from the British Council. I'm afraid it's a blatant plug, but to respond to me here and Oli, uh, this is the first Games that sought an international youth sporting legacy, and we, with a number of partners, are trying to deliver that. We've got a programme to reach 20 million kids around the world in Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, South Africa, and improve their sport, uh, improve their health outcomes through sports coaching and a number of sports strategies. And, and that is, I think, quite a, an inspirational and new approach to, to the Games. Thank you. Um, Peter, I think Peter York, you had your hand up a second ago. Would you like to have your say? Thank you very much, uh, Peter York. Now, you're all boosters, and what I, I'd like you to put you on the spot to think the other set of thoughts, the unboostery, non-Olympic, moronic inferno sort of thoughts, which is, what about the opportunity cost? Because, of course, before credit crunch, we would have thought of this as a lot, a lot of money, as Veronica said. It's still a lot of money. And nobody, as Meher said, nobody quite accounted for it in the first place. Now, what about these great transformative and legacy schemes? Could they have happened otherwise? Could they have happened more effectively? Could people have challenged the terrible shame of, of the East End otherwise, and what about the opportunity cost for the arts? Has it really been worth it? Because the one justification for an Olympics is the one that Miha described, which is to put a second-tier emerging nation or a second-tier emerging city on the map. 
this didn't apply to London when the bid was made. London was top dog in the world. So the, the, we didn't need to be put on the map. What are the other real substantive benefits? What is the opportunity cost? I think, I think that's a very useful question. I mean, I, I don't know if any of you here have read the Legacy Framework document, which obviously is being updated, but when I read it recently, there's rather a chilling statement in it which says, after 2012, part of the park will be completed and reopened to the public in, after a short time. How long is a short time? Most developments in the surrounding area will happen over a longer period. Now, you know, what is that? Is that 10 years? I mean, this, this could be a, a political time bomb, could it not, Robin? If you find that the Olympic Park goes under wraps yes. um, on the day after the Olympic closes um, and the, the area basically becomes one great building site again, how do you manage that? So I think that does, in a way, bring in issues about jobs and about, you know, the positive benefits. So, Robin, perhaps you would like to have a, a word on that. That could be a real problem. We need to get the park open as quickly as possible. If we're talking about the time scales, think 20 years. Truth is that we sit down the Lee Valley and along the docks. We haven't talked about Royal Docks, by the way, which is going to be a fabulous XL site. It could be a fabulous place to go and have really interesting stuff going on there. 20 years to develop and build out and the opportunities and the jobs that will come. That's the sort of time scale we're talking about. When the park reopens, there'll be development sites there. A real opportunity to drive London forward. The question, it's a really good question. We were discussing that yesterday. If you gave me £9 billion, you gave me amazing powers, because they've got amazing powers in the park that I should have in Newham. If you gave, gave us all that, but then also the focus from every politician and everybody in the country, then you could do the same. Trouble is, after a century, we haven't done it. Because to put all those things together has never happened. Yes. That's the legacy of the Olympics that at the moment, I think, is the big one. It's let us focus on that. Now, the question then becomes, can you get the jobs to transform local people? Creating those jobs may just suck people in. And that won't change the nature. Remember I talked earlier about Canary Wharf and the fact that <coughs> Tower Hamlets has still got all that poverty? We need to pay and work with the people that haven't worked. I've got 18,000 people who never worked in my borough. They need support. It costs £5,000 a pop to get one of those people into work. If we have the jobs coming from places like Westfield and places like, and the developments that are coming and the opportunities that are coming, we need to spend the money on the people to get them in. But the answer is, yes, you could have done it differently, but how would you have done it after a century? Don't see it. I think this is the one way we've had the chance to do it. And personally, spending £9.3 billion in East End, it's a, nothing like as much as we should be spending. John, give us more money. Thank you very much, Robin. John, could we, you just come in on this issue of the time scale? Because, yep. I mean, it, it, I think people will be, you know, obviously hugely excited by the games, hugely excited by the triumph of all the medals. But then what? And how do you actually handle that? I mean, 20 years is a jolly long time to say that that's um, what you're aiming at. So what, what, how can you reassure us? Okay, can I, can I just make the point, though? This would not, you could not do it in this country. Robin is absolutely right. The only time anything happens in this country is when, in fact, you give specific powers off the back of something which is absolutely certainly going to happen. Look at Thames Gateway. You know, I, I'll say no more. Nothing's happened. After endless years, it is, it is going nowhere. 
if you go to King's Cross Railway Lands, you've got one of the other biggest development opportunities taking place in this country as a consequence of the Channel Tunnel Railing. It would not have happened without Channel Tunnel Railing. You would not get the redevelopment of the King's Cross Railway Lands. The Docklands Regeneration Corporation, without the Docklands Regeneration Corporation, nothing would have happened. You have to be prepared to give very specific and powerful powers, take them away from Robin, give them to somebody else, and things happen. In terms of what will happen post the Games, we will re the site. We, we expect to reopen the site um, in the summer of 2013. So it'll close um, in September after the Games. We've got to reconfigure the site. We've got to uh, do things to the Aquatic Centre uh, and so on. And our target is sort of May towards the summer of 13. We'll reopen the site. And I absolutely agree. It's got to be reopened as quickly as possible. It is, there are, the plans are for 6,000 more homes on the site. So it is going to be a long-term redevelopment of the site. And what is absolutely crucial, and it's a big challenge for Margaret and her team because they are looking at this now, is to ensure that we don't finish up with a wind-blown area where you've got construction sites with hoardings around them. What we've got to be prepared to do is not have construction sites to be developed in the future, that some of those sites will not be redeveloped for 10 years. So let's make them green sites in the meantime so that it can be used and become a wider part of the parkland. Have a bigger park, which in the long term we will, as developers come forward, you will take land away from that park and put in the offices or whatever, the schools, whatever else it might be that you use to rebuild the park. But the great thing is that unlike any other country before, we have got in place an Olympic Park legacy company. Britain is taking a more serious approach to the legacy of the Olympic Games than any country has done in the past. And that, I think, is something to be optimistic about. Thank you. Unfortunately, the, the clock is ticking and Julia's nodding at me, so I think um, um, we won't be able to take any more questions. I really am sorry. I think we could go on all morning and the, uh, the panel has done an absolutely fantastic job and I hope you feel that you're taking something away from your different perspectives. So um, I'd like to thank the panel very, very much indeed for coming this morning and for contributing to the debate and it's a great performance at a very early hour. So please would everyone give the panel a big clap. <laughs>